What's up? What's happening? Welcome in to the Hoffman Show. Back in the chair on a Friday. Happy to be with you. Streaming live as well on the free Odyssey app. Uh, we will have a loaded show today. Uh, we got Clint Yates coming up in half an hour. Um, just got a text from Mark Kestisher, who still is going to join us. We're going to have to bump him a little bit. Apparently, the Lakers, Anthony, uh, you know, LeBron James or someone is like running a little behind on the, the media for the NBA in season tournament. So we might have to bump back with Mark Kestisher a little bit. And it's LeBron's fault. I actually don't know if it's LeBron. It's just the Lakers in general are running a little bit behind schedule. So these things happen. Uh, so we'll, we'll move Kestie around to where he needs to be. You'll hear from Logan Paulson throughout the show, uh, or it's part of the show as well. Uh, and, and I'm happy to, happy to be back. Anthony, how were the last, uh, last couple of days without me? Craig, I'm not going to lie. The wheels fell off the bus and I allowed it. I'm joking. I'm joking. I that's not what you told me via text. Thanks for saving this to the show that, that we're just hanging on by a thread. No, nah, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, the last two days were pretty good. You know, a lot of passion um, from Linnell, of course. Doc, you know, he coming in here. He had some good lines, some good bars this week. What um, was the best bar from Doc? We have finger pointers, not fighters. I really like that bar by him. Ooh. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Good I bar. Mean, um, but, yeah, the, the last two days were, were definitely pretty good. Yeah, I mean, not not surprising at all that yeah. they would be they'd be good. Uh, those are two very good professionals. Uh, thrilled that that they were able to to fill in uh, when I was unable to to be here. Uh, everything is a okay with me. And, you feeling uh, good? Yeah, feeling or feeling you know good enough. Okay, um, you know did what we need to do. Yep. And uh, excited to be excited to be back here on this uh, whatever day it is. It's Friday, right? Yep. It's Friday, um, and. I missed uh, an interesting Wednesday uh, because that is the day that John Kime and Jeremy Fowler revealed their or published their story on ESPN.com that uh, revealed a bunch of details about the commander's season and kind of where this has all gone wrong for Washington. And I think that there's a lot of stuff in there that was on the record for the first time of things that I had heard, things that we had hinted at, perhaps even on this show. Um, some of the disgruntled players with Eric Bieniemy, some of the reasons why they were disgruntled from play calling to scheduling. And I thought it did a very fair job, Anthony. I'm not sure what Linnell and Doc said uh, when discussing it over the last couple of days. But I thought it did a particularly fair job of – saying like specific to the enemy stuff that some of it might be players and coaches who are not up to the winning standard. And that was kind of my, my thing in the preseason, right? was like, these guys are going to learn what it takes to work. Like the enemy knows what it takes and it's probably going to run some people the wrong way. Um, and I think the piece does a good job of laying out that as kind of one side of it. And then also the enemy just being unhinged at certain points about certain things and not knowing when to let up at others and kind of presenting both sides. The, the players feel ground into the, you know, the staff is like super overworked, uh, even by NFL standards, um, that the players feel like there's just a bunch of nonsense happening 
um, in terms of their schedules being jerked around in ways that they're, they were just unnecessary. And it's like, Hey man, I know you did everything this way in Kansas city, but you don't need to change everything here. Our off day isn't going to determine whether or not we win or lose. It is going to run a bunch of the rest of our lives and we're used to it this way. Why do you have to change it on us? Um, and I think that the, you know, there's the NFC executive who's quoted in the piece is saying like, well, there's guys in, you know, like Mahomes and like Kelsey who needed that punch in Kansas city. But I think then you see the failure of Rivera over the top of it all to kind of be the steadying force and be the head coach to, to say like, Hey, all right, EB, you're going to have all this power, but I'm going to be the, the cooling saucer. I'm going to be the check. I'm going to be the brakes while you're the gas. And that's something that obviously Eric and Andy Reed had a great relationship with over the years. Now, Andy will push guys too. And Ron can push people. Um, but like Ron felt so hands off, which makes me actually think back to, the question I asked him, remember in the preseason or the first couple of weeks of the season, um, Anthony, and I kind of did the whole, what does Ron do now segment? And so instead of just pontificating on the radio about it, I went out to Ashburn and politely asked Rivera, like, so what do you do now? And, and the, the, the longer, uh, version of the question that will actually get answered. that doesn't sound like I'm questioning why his, he exists was along the lines of, so you've delegated a lot. That's something you've built up the ability to do over the last four years. How do you spend your time now? And he talked about mentoring assistants and obviously being there as a sounding board when need be and getting to spend some more time on individual things, uh, as opposed to being this big overseer. Um, and I, I wonder, not, I wonder, I, I, it is my opinion that Ron went too far the other way, that he got way too hands off. And I'm not saying that Ron's like the world's best head coach and has like a perfect touch with this stuff. And if his hands were on, then, oh, they'd actually be, you know, headed towards another uh, 500 level season with a chance to go on a late run and, and finish in the playoffs. Um, he's not good at it. And that's kind of the, the point, but it would certainly be better than this. And I, and I think that some of the behind the scenes, nonsense um that has happened and the, the not even nonsense the behind the scenes consternation that has happened probably wouldn't have and and i think that the well actually i'll save that for next because there's a larger point in terms of where the balance is that i think is like my big takeaway from this but and like when you read the story like what what to you stood out in terms of wow that's that's really a huge problem or like wow that's that sounds bad, but I don't think it's actually that bad. Like, what are the details that that resonate with you? Uh, it's, I think it's more so along the lines of, you know, we've been stuck in just mediocrity like for so long, and I feel like you know, Eb he does come from he 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 was coming from a winning franchise, you know, a, a franchise that had been in the Super Bowl and the AFC title game for several years in a row, so. I, in my understanding, I'm like, all right, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's coming over here. He's giving these guys, you know, instruction on, you know, how to be uh, competitive, you know, and just guiding them and trying to, like, prepare those guys because he knows what it takes to, you know, get them to that uh, championship uh, pedigree. So my trust is in him for real, for real. So if we got players, you know, complaining and, and saying, oh, it's Eric Bieniemy's way and things of that nature – Guess what? Your way got you to like where you are, like where we've been the last, you know, decade or so in mediocrity. Eric Bieniemy, he's coming over here. He wants you guys to work. He's going to push you. And 
I just don't think our guys have like you know responded the way I think everybody else would really want them to have responded. And I think I was talking to you about you know this guys and like you know people being player coaches and like this generation responding to um, this style of coaching as opposed to like years past and things of that nature. So it, it's more so I, I just don't think these guys have responded in the way that I I would have possibly responded or, you know, people of the past would have responded. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. And that actually is kind of the big point I want to make next. Why in some ways nobody's wrong, but in mm-hmm. some ways everyone is wrong. When I read this story specific to the stuff about the enemy, um, and, and I think the same kind of principle that I'm going to talk about can be applied to Del Rio as well. So I'll explain that kind of the the art of coaching side of this that I think really sticks out and something I've touched on before this season. But this story does a great job of illustrating the failure of the coaching staff this year to do the thing, not to be smart about football, not to X's and O's this, to do the thing that they're charged to do, coach. Uh, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that next. It's the Hoffman Show on the Team 980 and always live on the free Odyssey app. It's the Hoffman Show on the Team 980, always live as well on the free Odyssey app. Hope you're having a great Friday. Uh, today, Anthony, I think is actually the earliest sunset of the year. I believe that's factually accurate. Oh, man. So does that mean, oh, that's why the sun is right here shining bright well you probably can't see it but behind this camera it is shining well and then it's gonna be gone soon wow i just got super blurry if you're watching on youtube come on camera focus my camera is clearly mine it lacks focus but um wow it really is not wanting to do it do the thing it's not oh there it is all right uh now that we're back in focus i can make the pay off the tease as they say in the business um so to me, the ESPN piece, Anthony, that John Kime and Jeremy Fowler published earlier this week highlights a point that I have made multiple times this year that really comes down to the art of coaching and the science of coaching, uh, whichever way you want to look at it. There's a failure. There's a mix of both to be successful, and there's a failure of both by pretty much everyone involved in the commander's staff this year, which is it does not matter how brilliant you are schematically. It does not matter how good your plan is if nobody actually follows it. So let's say uh, I hate, I generally hate like war sports analogies. Um, so I'm not really like being analogous here. It's just, it's a metaphor. It's a big giant disconnected metaphor, right? But if you have the world's greatest general tactician wise, like, and I'm talking like 1700s, we're, we're George Washington going through the woods against if the British are coming. I know that wasn't George Washington. People just stick with me here. Wow. This analogy is really tortured already. Uh, The point is, if you've got the greatest battle plan in the history of battle plans, it's foolproof. Like, all you got to do is execute it. But you're really bad at teaching your troops how to execute it. And because of that, there's not a lot of buy-in. Or for whatever reason, there's just not a lot of buy-in. And all of a sudden, you get on your horse and you ride out to fight the whoever you're fighting. In this case, because I'm torturing the metaphor, the British. And... You turn around and you get to the battlefield and you see your opponent and it's, it's not a very good tactician. You know this guy. You got the scouting report. This guy sucks. You know that this guy's going to play right into your hands. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, we got him. And you turn around and get your troops and you're, you're ready, except for you don't have any troops there. That's an issue. 
You need, you need the troops. And that, to me, is the commander's season. It doesn't matter if the enemy is right or wrong. It doesn't matter if the uh, complications of Del Rio's scheme would actually work if the players could just freaking execute it. It doesn't matter what Rivera says or does if no one is willing to follow them or they can't follow them. Simpler is better than complex if people can't follow complex. The, the Tuesday off day might be better than the Monday off day or whatever it is. The Monday off is better than Tuesday off for whatever strategic reason, except for if all the players hate it and they resent you for it. Because now you're not getting their best when they are in the building. The changes that have been made to this offense surely have made it a better offense. But it's nowhere near its max potential because along the way it has alienated some of its most important parts. It is very clear based off this piece and other public comments that Terry McLaurin is not happy with Eric Bieniemy in this offense. They have tried their best as professionals to make it work because that's who they are. They're two competitors that want to win and I think do have a healthy respect for each other. And Terry no doubt respects what Eric has done and no doubt Eric respects what Terry has done. And that is why, apparently, according to this piece, they've had weekly meetings since that Giants game where Terry went as far as Terry will ever go in terms of publicly criticizing a game plan or a coach. But why did it get there? How did you not find a way in the preseason to make sure, and in the first couple weeks of the season before that, when you're still competitive? Remember, this team started 2-0. and You had a chance this year. It didn't have to be like this. And they didn't find a way to make sure they stayed in a place where they could go along together. Together is better in football. It's just a two-dependent sport. Sam needs the O-line. The O-line needs Sam, right? We talk about the sack issues to take it even away from the coaches, right? Sometimes these sacks were because Sam holds the ball too long just who he's been since college, if not in high school. Sometimes they're because the O-line didn't block anybody, at least not long enough. Sometimes you could just eliminate a sack altogether by having the quarterback turn around and hand the ball off. And that is another thing that I think frustrated many people around the organization in terms of fans and media, but also people within the organization. I think that when, you're, when you have a quarterback that is as well-liked as Sam Howell, and as young as Sam Howell, for instance, the offensive line probably feels somewhat protective of him, like big brother type of protective. And I think that some of them probably look at Eric Bieniemy and go, you left our little brother out to dry. Like we know we're trying our best to protect him, but you could just make it easier for all of us. Let us go hit someone. Let us run the football. By the way, Brian Robinson's pretty good. Antonio Gibson's pretty good. And whether or not that's correct or not strategically is not actually the point. Because while short-term, what Eric did might be better strategically, if you lose the football team and you look lifeless week after week and you're not getting the best in preparation, you're not getting the best in practice, thus you're not looking good in the games, and your head coach doesn't seem like he's doing anything to fix it, all it's going to do is spiral out of control, which is what's happened. Coaching is about getting people to move in the same direction, no matter what direction that is. 
And I, when I say that, like, obviously you don't want people doing crazy, whatever, like this is not, you know, as long as it's a somewhat feasible plan, but in the NFL, in football in general, 11 together doing an inferior something is better than 10 doing the right thing and one person doing it wrong. And we've seen that defensively. One person screws it up, touchdown. 10 guys were doing it right. It was a great call, great idea. Doesn't matter if, you know, because there, you know, you had the perfect check. Oh, we could, we should have matched this concept. We had the right call on. Well, how, how'd you get there? We checked to it because we always check to it. Well, did Benjamin St. Juice get the check? No. Is that happening every week? Yeah. Then it's not the perfect call anymore. You need to figure out how to play in a way that you have 11 doing the same. And you have 53 plus whatever practice squad, whatever, move in the same direction organizationally. And I think Ron Rivera failed as a leader to understand the impact that his coordinators' failures were having on the football team. He also hired them. So you can look at whatever level of failure you want to there. The coordinators did not do a good job. And the staffs below them are not good. And so you have position coaches. And some of this, I, I do think, to be fair, I wonder how much of this has to do with the ownership situation that was had. You know, th there's some mentioning in the piece about, you know, like Snyder's ownership and the lack of spending. And, like, if you look back at the offseason, how long it took to get Travell Wharton, the offensive line coach job, like Travell was a Ron guy. The, the offensive line coach is a really important coaching position. Like, Drew Terrell leaves in the offseason. You know, where did Bobby Ingram come from? Was that an EB guy? Obviously, Tavita is a, an EB guy, but they've never, like, truly worked together before. So, Eric might have put way too much on his own plate by not having the right staff underneath him. And some of that might have been influenced by Dan Snyder not wanting to spend any money. I think you look at the defensive staff, like, you don't really replace Chris Harris with a quality coach. You get, you get Brett Wieselmeyer, who doesn't make it 12 weeks into the season. So there's just a comprehensive failure to manage, like big picture manage, comprehensive failure to little picture manage, to people manage, to expectations manage, to adjust and adapt on the fly. And it has to do with the same things that fail organizations all the time. Management of power and people. Who's in charge of what? How do they handle it? How open are they to feedback? And also expectation setting. Because I do, like, I think what was done well early was it was very clearly established Eric's in charge of the offensive stuff. And I think that there's probably more of a tactical discussion to be had about some of the impacts the way they practiced offensively had on their defense because. By the way, Eric set that all offseason for everyone. So, you know, it's hard to pin, and I'm, by no means am I primarily uh, or even secondarily uh, pinning the defensive struggles on Eric Bieniemy. That would be ridiculous. But I do wonder with the change practice structure, um, how much impact that had, although I would say that's on the defensive coaches, to either speak up and say, like, this is not going to work. We need this and Ron to settle that in a way that's satisfactory or for them to adjust to what the offense was doing if they signed off on it and be more effective at coaching. But the, the different schedule has an effect on them too. You know, they haven't been able to stop the run all year and practice a lot against the run.
because Eric didn't practice running the football. So there's, there's all of these tactical human power management stuff. And I think what this piece does a really good job of laying out is they pretty much failed on all of them, which is why they're four and eight or four and four and eight. Yeah. Four and eight, four and nine. Yep. This week, 14 by week, four and nine, four and nine. Yep. Anthony math. That's where I fail. It's all good, man. It's been a lot of losses in a row. It's hard to keep count. <laughs> the point is it's not good. And one of the things that Logan and I talked about in take command this week is what are the, the characteristics that we've seen in successful assistant coaches that have gone on to be good head coaches? You know, everyone loves, every broadcast loves to show the picture of Mike McDaniel and Sean McVay, and Matt LaFleur, and all those guys that were here and some of whom I covered, um, all of whom Logan played for. So what did we see in them that we should be looking for in the next head coach? You'll hear some of that conversation coming up. In the 5 o'clock hour, Mark Kestesher going to join us either 5.30 or 6 from the NBA's in-season tournament in, La or in Las Vegas. Uh, and next, actually, we will go out to – well, actually, he's back in L.A., but Clinton Yates has been in Nashville for Major League Baseball's winter meetings. Juan Soto, now a Yankee. And where is Shohei Otani going? We await that news. Yates joins us to discuss that and more next on the Hoffman Show on the Team 980 and always live on the free Odyssey app. It's the Hoffman Show on the Team 980, always live as well on the free Odyssey app. Hope that you are having a great Friday, and right now it is our pleasure to welcome to the show uh, for his usual Wednesday visit on a Friday, Clinton Yates. What's up? What's going on, man? I am honestly exhausted, both <laughs> physically and literally and figuratively, excuse me, because I've spent the last five days in Nashville, Tennessee, home of the winter meetings where one Shohei Otane did nobody any favors by not signing while anybody was actually paying attention to this window. So that has been a long slog and brain drain. And quite frankly, as a baseball fan, I'm a little annoyed with it at this point. Yeah. Ba baseball free agency is so weird to me because, like, I actually don't know when it starts. I know most things happen at the winter meetings, but there's not like this – july 1st nba style deadline like would baseball benefit from that of trying to make it a la nfl free agency is now like that too where there is you like know, a real like let's let's start this party now maybe in general but it, maybe not in general but in specific for shohei i could have used a lot more fanfare this whole vow of secrecy if anybody says anything then your chances are screwed deal to me is just very lame like i get it He's a private guy, and I'm not mad at him as a player. I really enjoy his play quite a bit. But this all just feels like a lot of fanfare over what is effectively nothing in the context of what we're actually getting. And so it just kind of feels like, hey, man, you do know that at some point in time you do have to actually do the personality in order for people to like you. Maybe that's just me, but it's all very exhausting, and I just kind of feel like MLB has not quite gotten what they wanted out of this process from arguably the most famous player that's ever played in their league. Right. Well, that's the funny thing is like for years, MLB hot stove was like the free agency, even more mm -hmm. than NBA, more than, than the NFL, certainly. And then NBA free agencies kind of started to blow up. Obviously, the decision uh, was was the big, uh, you know, pile of pyro there. Um, and then, you know, Durant signing on July 4th with the Warriors and like all through the years, we've seen how that's evolved. And the NFL was like, 
Oh, this is good. We need to make sure that we have like free agency specials on TV and it's going to start at this time. And like they've done a good job of that as well. And now Hot Stove is kind of in the background where it's like, oh, in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter, Juan Soto became a Yankee. And I, I think for the way modern media works, people are so much more interested in the transactions than the games in, in so many ways that like MLB's got to do something to catch up, Shohei or not. You're totally right, and, you know, as somebody who's a veteran of the winter meetings, this one felt particularly lacking in that regard. It just sort of felt like, what are we doing here? Because not only does Shohei not sign, but because of who he is as a player, that sets the market for a lot of other teams, both from a pitcher and a player standpoint, because he's a two-way guy. So it is legitimately affecting things around, around Major League Baseball, not just the particular fan desires of any one group or any one team. Like, you can't sign a bunch of people if you're waiting around for the big fish to sign to regulate the rest of the market. And I think it's just been kind of disappointing overall. I mean, sure, there might be news today. We're talking about who's going on private jets to where, what people's dogs are named, and so on and so forth. But, like, I could have used something closer to the decision, quite frankly, Gregory, because that would have at the very least been entertaining with some level of finality to it as well. I think if ESPN, here's a hot take for you. If ESPN had okay. better executed the decision and it wasn't at the Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich, that would be seen as like an amazing, smart way to do that. Oh, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I do not fall in the category of people who thought the decision was a bad thing. Not remotely. I mean, yeah, it was a little overblown, but I'm not going to let the actions of some idiots in Cleveland who decided to start burning jerseys make me think that that wasn't pretty cool. I remember exactly where I was when that happened, and I will forever do so. So, you know, I, I do think that there's something that both networks from a television standpoint, not just my own, but MLB Network as well, could do better. But I also feel like MLB's got to find a way to corral, you know, its stars because you just can't have one guy jerking around a bunch of teams. And I don't say that loosely. I just mean that that's kind of what it feels like. When a manager like Dave Roberts gets castigated for even acknowledging that a guy visited the stadium, like, that's just ridiculous. This has gone a little too far. For sure. Clint Yates with us, uh, fresh off the winter. Well, not fresh. He just got back from the winter meetings in Nash <laughs> Nashville. They uh, were exhausting. Uh, did the, any Woo Girls crash the winter meetings? Was that, that add to any of the exhaustion, having to dodge uh, them? You know, what's weird about it is that it was in Nashville at the Gaylord. And if you've ever been to that mm. place, it's like this big indoor resort that has like a ceiling that's it's all glass. So during the day, it kind of feels like you're outside. And at night, it's just dark with all the lights lit up from Christmas and so on and so forth. So being inside that particular facility for an extended amount of time, yeah, not exactly great for morale. But, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right. As for Otani the player, like, yeah. what what is his two-way future? Because he's not going to pitch in 2024. Um, we know when he is pitching, he's a Cy Young caliber starter. But he's also coming off his second major elbow surgery, second Tommy John. Like, is he a reliever moving forward? Does he do the John Smoltz thing where he, he goes from starter to reliever or closer? Um, is he just a hitter now? Like, and, and how does that ultimately impact these contract negotiations? Because I don't want to pay him to be a two-way player uh, if, if, I don't, if I'm not going to get a two-way player. But if I'm Scott Boris... And his age, or, or whoever his agent is, he Boris guy. He is a Boris guy, yeah. He's not a Boris. Or he's guy. not a his Boris agent, guy. His oh, agent a is a guy, guy whose name is escaping me right now. But his agent is a former baseball player. And I'll answer your question in a second. But yeah. a lot of people believe that his agent is what's driving all of this goofiness in terms of everything, just trying to sort of make a name for himself. That's a little unfair, but it's also possibly partially true. As for your question. That is the smart baseball question, Craig. And I've been sort of looked at as an outsider for thinking, for thinking and saying aloud 
like, hey, this dude's not the same dude that you had the last six seasons, not even close. Coming back from double TJ is not a thing. It's happened, but it is not something that you can just reliably plug somebody in and say, yeah, he's going to be the Cy Young caliber pitcher or that he's even going to want to pitch again. And that's where this big question comes in. And I think is a big part of what these negotiations are about, which teams are willing to just pay him, even if it's not as a two-way player, but as sort of a social media content creator, that's basically what you're getting. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting because this is not unlike the messy deal in MLS. Like, this guy's huge. Wherever he goes, he's going to br- bring a certain bump to the market. So you're paying almost for more than just baseball on a lot of levels. Dude, double TJ for a guy who DHs when he doesn't pitch, it's a completely different scenario than we saw in the last six seasons in uh, Anaheim. And I think a lot of baseball fans are going to have to prepare themselves for that. It's possible and most likely – the days of Shohei as some robot who can do everything are, are kind of behind him just because of the limitations of the human body. Yeah, no, without question. And I heard uh, your boy Jeff Passan talking about this with SVP the other night, uh, which he's like, Otani will pay for himself in a way that no other player in baseball will because of the social media, because of the media bump and all that kind of stuff. Um, but still, if I'm a GM, like I'm trying to win World Series and, and that's... Right. That uh, having no idea who I'm spending five hundred million dollars on seems less than ideal. Um, meanwhile, Juan Soto is a Yankee now. Um, he he yeah. was a National. He won a World Series. We fell in love with him. Then they had to trade him to to San Diego. And I guess my my question on this, Clinton, uh, before we get to like Juan in in New York and what this could mean for them moving forward. But why did it go so wrong in San Diego? Because there is no way the Padres gave the Nationals all of that stuff that we are going to hopefully enjoy for the next decade here in D.C. to get a year and a half of Juan Soto and then trade him away to the Yankees. Yeah, this is a straight-up professional botch by the Padres, and not just because of what they did, but it's because of how it happened. They basically need to shed payroll due to legitimate accounting errors from their front office, and Juan Soto was the only guy without a no-trade clause except he was the best player on the team. And that is a problem. You know, you, you, you couldn't get rid of your other guys who were getting paid more, the Bogarts of the world. You know, there's various things I could go through, but what a mistake if you're the pods, man. If I'm a San Diego fan, I am livid that after doing all that to get that guy, you can't even find a way to keep him in the building because you've got money problems. It's embarrassing to the league overall, and I do think that there's something to be said also for the fact that for a guy who's, what, 25 years old to get traded twice before he's even gotten to – uh, you know, got to his free agency. That's weird, man. I really hope that Soto finally gets into a stable situation because he's such a talent and he's such a player. And him being in New York, Craig, with that short porch out there in right field as a left-handed bat, I think it'll do him a world of favors. But overall, I think both of these teams, the Yankees and the Padres, have been kind of operating in malpractice mode and both were desperate, which is why they ended up giving up so much to get a guy like that who hasn't necessarily been the greatest last season. Yeah, so that leads to what now for Soto like is he now a Yankee for pretty much life or is there a chance that he's a free agent next year and I don't know the Washington Nationals could go knocking again (laughs) I don't expect the Nationals to be the team that's involved in any talks with him in a free agent but again he's gonna be a pretty popular guy in New York I believe so and I don't think New York trades for him without at least some guarantees that they have at the very least an inside track to keeping him again Soto is one of the most exciting young players in the game, and if he's constantly getting shuffled around from team to team, I don't see that as good for Major League Baseball. I don't really even see that as good, quite frankly, for him. No, that is not the Juan Soto shuffle we deserve. We know yeah. what that is. That's a bad Juan Soto shuffle. 
Uh, Clint Yates with us, of course. Uh, you can catch him top of the hour, by the way, on Around the Horn on ESPN. Yes, uh, real quick before we go, I'm sure this is where you guys start the show today. NBA in-season tournament. Uh, when, 1 to 10, what did you think it was going to be? 1 to 10, what's it been for you? Um, it's been about a five. Like, it's not that I don't like the basketball. It's not like I don't like the court. It's just bringing this weird feeling to me of like, what exactly are we celebrating here? Am I really supposed to consider the IST some sort of form of postseason clutchness or whatever you want to call it that I'm going to factor into what I think about how teams are going to do in the actual NBA playoffs? I don't think so. Like, if you didn't know who Halliburton was before this tournament, sorry, you don't like NBA basketball that much, you know? And do you hang a banner if you win it? It's a very weird situation. And, like, LeBron had a great game the other night. I just remember thinking to myself, like, man, when this guy gets up, he really gets up for it, and he wants it. And I'm just very curious to see how this goes in the next five years or so because at the current moment – it doesn't resonate with me. I don't really feel it. I don't have a problem with it. I don't, issue, I don't have an issue with gimmicks for gimmicks' sake. This just happens to be a gimmick that I don't particularly like very much. And the, you know, the, the sort of neutral venue part of it is what made it weird to me. When this is all happening on home courts, it seemed more normal. Now it just feels odd. I don't know why. But, you know, it's produced some good basketball, some good unis. So I'm not mad at it. It just might not be for me. I guess not. I feel like you're zigging when everyone else is zagging. I've loved it. I think that it, like... It's bringing out a competitive side that we don't see outside of the playoffs, which is great to get in December. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like the NBA's version of the NCAA tournament, not in that obviously that's what you play for in March Madness uh, in, in college basketball, but, like, the tournament do-or-die element of it is I, – I think it's actually – like, you just can't help it. Like, if you're competitive and you know yeah. we're, it's winner in uh, or winner go home, then you're going to play differently. And I think that – the teams that have have really embraced that are the two teams that are going to wind up in the final. To your point, I don't know what hap- like how you feel if you win, but it feels better than losing. I don't disagree, but there's also a part of that that really exposes to me how much and how boring some people consider regular NBA basketball, so to speak. Like I watch the league night in and night out because I enjoy the product as is. It feels strange that for a league to kind of I'm not going to say cannibalize itself because that's not what it's doing, but it puts puts such a flashlight on all the other things happening around the league that I guess aren't good enough to get hyped about. Like, it's just a kind of a strange competitive balance for me as a fan, never mind somebody who's covered the league for a while, that I just sort of think that could be happening every night. But it's not. What's going on there, you know? But I'm not trying to um, yuck yums. It's just something that I think ultimately I will remember for how the courts look and how the unis look, not for necessarily, you know, some guy lit it up in the NBA Cup final. That's not really doing it for me. Yeah, no, the, this court, by the way, is one step too far. The Vegas court, yeah. super video gamey. Like, we can't, yes. we're, we gotta, we gotta. Uh, Mario, Mario Kart Rainbow Road, which, uh, yeah, that's yeah, exactly we gotta, what we gotta dial it back like 5%. And then we're, <laughs> then we're, they're gonna hit all the notes for me. We'll work on Clint. Uh, Clint Yates with us, uh, weekly here on the Hoffman Show. Appreciate you sliding around with me out in the middle of the week, uh, hitting up, uh, hitting us up here on a Friday. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you next week. Anything for you, Gregory. Appreciate it, and happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. That's Clinton Yates, everybody, with us on the Hoffman Show. With us on a football Friday on the Team 980, driven by your local Honda dealer. Experience power, performance, and ruggedness with Honda. See your local Honda dealer. When we get back, it is time for our weekend preview here on the Team 980. It's the Hoffman Show. We're on the Team 980. We're always live as well on the free Odyssey app. 
Marquesa sure locked in now for 5.30, live from Vegas in the NBA's in-season tournament. You'll hear some take command at the top of the hour. Uh, we will get, let you hear Logan Paulson's thoughts on what the commanders should be looking for in their next coaching staff, what makes a good assistant, what makes a good assistant uh, a good candidate for a head coach. Uh, so we'll talk about all that coming up at 5 o'clock uh, with Kesty with at 5.30. We'll shift our NFL picks around a little bit, but we'll get it all in here on a Friday as well as talking to Dave Johnson with the Wizards in Brooklyn tonight. Which means, uh, Anthony, we can call Dave and be like, Hello, Brooklyn. How you doing? Where are uh, you going? You think we won tonight? Maybe. It's not. It's not the most. I mean, they played well last time out. Yeah. I mean, didn't they? they, they no, wait. It was. Yeah, no. It was. It was last time out. They they played Philly close. I mean, Joel had a thousand points. Yeah, he had but, a billion point. Um, that was a five point game. Game before that, I think they had a close game as well. Yeah, so that'd be cool. Uh-oh. Maybe maybe if, if JP can start hitting some shots. Yeah. That'd be nice. That would be really nice. We thoroughly enjoy. I think we're going to be back at Capital One next week, by the way. Um, I don't know if it's Wednesday or Friday. I think it's more likely Friday. I think I'll be at Capital One next week. So that'll be, that'll be fun. Is it, I thought you said, oh, no, that's in two weeks where we have a 30-minute show. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's like that. the week before Christmas. Yeah, that's in a the Friday. Weeks. Like Christmas is on Monday. Yep. Uh, yeah, Friday before Christmas. Uh, I think Georgetown plays in one of the the tournaments, mm. a tournament, and uh, and so we have like a thirty minute show. Oh, yeah, uh, what we have now is a two minute edition of of our weekend preview, Anthony, which is brought to you by nobody. You gonna watch the uh, in season tournament final? Of course. Well, of course you are because it, it's a Lakers game. It, it, it depends, though. So I'm traveling to Miami after the show today. Mm, so if I have uh, time, if I have time. But I, th- I think I'll have time to be able to watch that game. So it's 8.30 tomorrow night on ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. By the way, I thought the, the, the TNT-ESPN crossover like, is a kind of a fun idea, but also was a little wacky. Um, you didn't like just, it? Like, it was cool for the novelty, but also, like, you know, Mike Breen and Doris Burke have great chemistry, and then Reggie's just out there yelling stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's like, this the chemistry, like, Kevin Harlan knows how to manage Reggie Miller and, like, set, not just manage him, like, Reggie's a child, but, like, you know, how to, how to work with him. Yeah. And, like, the Breen, Doris, Reggie... I think is a different. It didn't. It like they sounded like people who had never been together, which is so hard because Breen's so good. Um, I didn't watch as much of the late game, and when I did, it was mostly on mute because we had a, a friend of ours over, and it was kind of on in the background. Um, but I think Kevin Harlan probably got the easier lift because he's worked with Doc Rivers before. Um, so it was Candace and, and Harlan and Doc. I mean, the 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 shouting back and forth between Charles and Stephen A was pretty funny. That is um, hilarious. <laughs> That's my favorite part. That's my favorite part. I, I'm going to ask Kesty when he, if I remember, I'm going to try to ask Kesty when he's on the radio side. Like, were you jealous? Did you want a random, like, who did, was, uh, you know, did you get like Dwayne Wade behind the scenes and we didn't even know about it? Did you get someone from Turner on the radio broadcast? Mm. Um, but I think it was just Kesty and probably PJ, Carly Samo, um, their usual ESPN radio crew. But um, it was watching LeBron do what he did in the, the second, like, 
again, I had the game on mute in the background, and I could tell that like the crowd was going crazy, and like LeBron was like really feel it was just like a a gravitas to the moment that watching on mute over over Rachel's shoulder from our dining room table to the TV in the living room that I still understood what was happening with LeBron last night. It's unbelievable to be honest. Like, and and I I feel like you know he's in year twenty one. You can't take these games for granted. So every time LeBron is on the TV, Craig, you best believe I am locked in, and we're rewarded with just like greatness night in and night out. We 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 typically see you know people start to you know fade a little bit. LeBron is a little bit. There's like. 20 players maybe in the 76-year history of the league that have played his 21 years. You know who the, the all-time leading scorer is for a, a full season in their 21st season? Vince Carter. Yeah. You know what his average was? He averaged 7.3. I think it was 7.3, 7.9. Oh, my God. Yo, that is crazy. Don't pretend like you didn't see the same graphic I did on no, Instagram. No, I'm, so, I'm so serious. I'm so serious. I'm so serious. You just pulled that out of Anthony's brain somewhere. <laughs> I was just guessing just now. I think I think it was seven point nine. Um, That's crazy. But yeah, Vince Carter was is the all time leading scorer in the for a player in the twenty first season mm. with seven point something points a game. LeBron James is averaging over twenty five a game this year yeah. in his twenty first season. That is insane. Insane. And he last night he does it in you know he goes for twenty three minutes. In you know, thirty one in twenty three minutes. Ridiculous. Like an all time LeBron game. He's hundred and fifty two years old. Which I can't I like I've watched LeBron. LeBron James has been playing basketball since I was thirteen. Yeah. I think that's actually where the 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 show open, the hour open that we have with Scott Jackson. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, my bar mitzvah. Oh yeah. I think, I think we were talking about LeBron Oh wow. because that the, the same year that I was bar mitzvahed, uh, LeBron was drafted. That's a great year. Craig. I am 33 years old and will be 34 in February. And he is still playing NBA basketball. It's a good year. I'm just also the, the thing about the tournament. I'm just happy that it's so competitive. Like the guys are really out there laying everything on yes. the line. Like LeBron's out there taking three charges. Like, dude, what are you? You're, you're 37. I, like, I can't wait for him to, by the way, to shut it down for the rest of the season. <laughs> yeah, he probably won't take another like, one. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll see y'all in the playoffs. I proved that I still got it. Uh, by the way, Tyrese Halliburton, the other star who has emerged, uh, and and good for Tyrese getting the the love that he deserves. And mm-hmm. I will admit. I didn't even know he deserved this much love. Like, neither did his teammates, by the way, a couple years ago. Like, yep. he has done such a tremendous job, and Rick Carlisle's done a great job with him there in Indiana. Um, Tyrese Halliburton was born on February 29th. He's a leap baby. Um, February 29th, 2000. So he will turn 24 in, uh, in February. LeBron James has been playing NBA basketball since 2003. Tyrese Halliburton was born in the year 2000. Wow. Mm. Bananas. Bananas. It's the Hoffman Show. We're on the Team 980. We're always live on the free Odyssey app. Again, excited to watch that. That is uh, the biggest item on our weekend preview uh, coming up on Saturday night. Mark Kessler called the game for ESPN Radio. He will join us coming up at the bottom of the hour. Next, though, Logan Paulson's thoughts 
on the kind of assistant coach the commanders should be looking at to be their next head coach. That's here on the Team 980, live on YouTube at the Team 980, and streaming on the free Odyssey app.